Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe. We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe we have been having in-depth conversations about movies since 2011. You are telling me. Producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. Season 5 had some great adaptations, like our Meryl Streep Oscar-nominated performances series. We covered adaptations like Kramer vs. Kramer, Sophie's Choice, and The French Lieutenant's Woman. It's a real Sophie's Choice between those books. <laughs> you see what, I, <laughs> see what I did there? Uh, yeah. Uh, and I don't think it's quite at the level of a real Sophie's Choice. We also did Snowpiercer for our Bong Joon-ho series, adapted from the French graphic novel Le Transpersonnage. Man, I love that movie. We had our two-part 1939 series that included adaptations like Gone with the Wind, Ninochka, The Women, and The Hound of the Baskervilles. A number of those 1939 movies, like Goodbye, Mr. Chips, also tied into our recent 1940 Academy Award Best Picture nominee series. Our naughty children horror series had creepy adaptations like The Bad Seed, Village of the Damned, The Innocents, and Children of the Corn. For our Hayao Miyazaki series, we talked about his take on Lupin III with the Castle of Cagliostro, plus his own The Wind Rises. Some great listener choice picks, too. Viridiana and The Great Escape. And for our David Mamet Wright's series, The Verdict, The Untouchables, and Glengarry Glen Ross. Plus, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang from our Shane Black series adapted from Brett Halliday's novel, Bodies Are Where You Find Them. Dive into the sources for all of these at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book you buy helps support the show. Check out thenextreel.com slash originals today and find your next read. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends... Our conversation begins. In just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. 
It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. Andy, I can't believe it. I, we, I, need, I need to hear from you, man. <laughs> I need to hear from you in a big way, because this is, this is a Red Letter Day, episode 196. 196. And it has taken that long for you to see predestination. <laughs> Not quite that long. <laughs> <laughs> you finally did it, man. You did it. I did it. And I am kicking myself now that I didn't go see it right away. <laughs> it's, and it was brilliant. I absolutely loved it. Really something that you watch and then your brain just starts spinning trying to piece everything together and it was really just a fascinating brilliantly done sci-fi film and the time travel in it works really well very interesting paradoxes that it kind of creates that you don't really worry about uh you know i i just i i loved it and i uh thank you for recommending it so long ago (laughs) (laughs) i am so i am relieved i feel like now we can move on we can That's just right. put all this on un- it's water under the bridge. <laughs> we can move on to something else. We can uh, finally I take, the, take the next step in our relationship. That's right. I, I would recommend I would recommend that uh that you go out and pick up the the short story. By Heinlein. Yes, it's fantastic. And and I recommend it because you and I have had this conversation about adaptations and the struggle of adaptations and doing a good adaptation, what it all means. And I would be interested in your take on the adaptation uh, in this case, because my humble opinion, it's fantastic. Hmm. It is really artfully well done. It's one of those that I put way up high on my list of kind of role model adaptation scripts. I think they did a great job. Interesting. So I'd be, I think you should pick that up. That's well, I'll have to. I, yeah. Well, that was the first thing that I uh, thought after I finished is like, I really want to read the source material for this because yeah. it's uh, really just smart, smart uh, storytelling. It's smart, and Heinlein is a is such. I mean, he was just such a fantastic writer and such a uh, an adept, you know, sci fi writer that uh, you know it's it, it is it is really. I mean, they they leave the stuff that you need to to let sort of fill into your fill in yourself. They leave it to you, um, but uh, but but I think they capture all of the right tones and notes and and major elements. I really liked it. Uh, not like you know, I compare that to something like um, uh, the Secret Life of Walter Mitty, where the the you know they they got the spirit of it, and it's a great film. It's one of my very favorite films, but it's not the short story at like mm-hmm. by any by any stretch, uh, right. apart from kind of the the tone and feeling of it and the and the you know the name of the main character. Um, so anyway, wow, that's wow. my that's my thing. How you feeling? You feeling all right? I feel good. I feel great. I feel wonderful. Is it hot there? You hot? It is. Yeah. It is toasty. Over yeah. one ten? Is it over one ten? No, it hasn't been, but it's been a little more humid because of the 
Monsoons. Monsoons. It's like you live on another planet. I know. You know, I thought of you when they flew by uh, Pluto. <laughs> uh, Did you see me waving? Well, I thought because, you know, the first picture that came through looked like, you know, the desert planet. It looked like Tatooine, and that's what I imagine Phoenix to look like most of the time. It does really yeah. look like that most of the time, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, we had a we we're both. I think our trailers for the evening tonight are there. Are both of us are doing uh, trailers that were Comic Con related, right? Comic Con San Diego, um, yes, was this week, and so both of us are doing Comic Con trailers. And I, yours was not a leak, right? It was an official release. It was an official release, and it was a. I mean, they there was a teaser for it back in March after the Walking Dead um, finale, I believe. Um, but I think it was pretty um, teasery. I miss. I didn't see it, so I don't know. But um, yeah, it's. Uh, it is the uh, the big world premiere trailer for the new AMC show, and yeah, I'm cheating a little bit. Went with the TV show this yeah. time, but um, well, that was a. Don't don't talk about that yet. Oh, I mean, I don't sorry, want to hear got, about your trailer yet. We're not doing trailers. I haven't you said got me the all thing. Confused. I, I did. Like, no, I, this is a pivot. I'm oh, pivoting okay. because I want to talk about this. This you sent me this link to this article um, that uh, about how frustrating it is for some of the studios when they put together these like teaser reels. These you know for for Comic Con that get leaked. These mm-hmm. iPhone videos. I mean, these things that were designed for the big screen, for the audience that waited 17 hours to actually get in and see these these stinger reels uh, themselves. And for those of us who got to sit back and watch that iPhone footage or or watch <laughs> the, you know, the pressure build behind, you know, people wanting these things to be released and and having them ultimately be released... Um, you know, there was some frustration in the media, and I'm curious your take on that. Do you? Th- what, what do you feel? Uh, what do you think about these stinger reels? Do you think that uh, that they should be for audiences only, and we should just suck it up and not see it until they're good and ready? You know, I I'm so torn on that. Um, to a certain extent, yes. I mean, the people who are going to Comic Con and waiting in those lines are paying. Uh, to go so they can, you know, get a sneak peek of all that sort of stuff. And then when somebody films it with their phone and posts it to the internet, and all of a sudden the world watches it, generally a very poor, crappy iteration of it, it, uh, you know, it, it's not, it, it's not as exciting. Like, uh, you know, I watched the, uh, the one you're talking about tonight. I watched the. Tiny, tiny version of it where you really can't even tell what's going on. I'm like, yeah, okay. It doesn't really get me excited about the movie at all because I just don't know really what's going on. Um, and then it's that race and it's that decision with the studios. Do we do we jump on that and do we do we let that stuff leak and then use that as as a, a tool to get people excited, get them foaming at the mouth, and then release the high quality stuff for everybody to see. And I think there is something to that. I also think that there's something to kind of letting it be just a sneak and not uh, not giving people anything more. Like Deadpool, that one is one where I believe they said they still have three weeks of work to do on the effects on what they showed the Comic-Con crowds mm-hmm. before they actually release it to everybody else. And you can watch it. It's just not very high quality. Um, but... You know, it's 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 this I don't know, it's this perpetual game. 
what was the uh i mean in that article they talked about the uh well it was deadpool actually it was deadpool that was the, the only reason it got made is because that little yeah uh the demo was released right right which is which is in the film it looks like and that certainly that was in the the trailer in in good portion yeah uh, and it look i mean i mean you know for those of us who who have been very excited about deadpool and the character and there are a lot of us uh, it, it small screen, big screen, whatever. It's exhilarating to see that character on screen, and I think they've, I, I, you know, from the trailer, I think they've nailed it. I would watch the trailer again and again and again. It looks fantastic. I, you know, for me, the question is: is it is the studio, uh, you know, uh, I get it that they want a Comic Con exclusive, but it, have those days passed? Right. I mean, is that an is an is the era of event exclusives? Um, an assumption that producers can no longer make. I, I think what Comic-Con San Diego this year says, uh, confirms, is that that is true. Uh, and and ultimately, releasing Suicide Squad uh, is is the, the, the testament to that. Yeah, I I mean, I guess so. It's It just makes me a little sad. I mean, well, it makes me, I'm thrilled because I actually get to see the stuff since I'm not there. Right. But at the same time, it does take out a little bit of the magic of, of actually being there. Now, I guess what they can do is they have the cast there, they have panels, all that sort of stuff to still yeah. give sense of magic to it that the rest of us who aren't there won't get because we're not actually there. And but. that's what I think you're, you're paying for in your blood and sweat and time and money. To, to wait there, you're paying for that whole experience and ultimately the you know the uh, my opinion having not gone this year to comic-con is that you know why i go is to is to see you know the people who are making it and to be it as a part of the community in a way that i can't be sitting alone you know on my computer um and and that ultimately the trailer becomes just an artifact um and and again i don't feel like i i don't want to make a case that it should or shouldn't be this way. I just feel like, as an observation, I feel like getting frustrated as a studio head that this footage was leaked is an arcane sensibility given the times we live in. Yeah, right. Unless they're going to actually like do it like a, a preview screening where they actually bag everybody's phones mm-hmm. and and have a... a, a, a metal detector going in the door and and they really go through every person everything there's no way that it's going to ever right well and and you know compare that to jj abrams uh you know and the star wars event uh where they they did not release a trailer they released more behind the scenes footage and quick flashes of characters no story elements were released and people were just as incredibly excited about the experience of being seeing the cast on stage of being there of of you know it was yet another one of these wonderful jj abrams love letters to the star wars universe and then to have everybody in the audience led out by a legion of stormtroopers to go hear a live symphony play the star wars music that that is an amazing experience and that's something that you only get when you go and i think you know that's likely a lesson that you know these other studios could learn from yeah, and I think that's exactly it. Is they really turned it into something that um, had more of a, a tangible, memorable, um, you know, thing that people will 
be able to remember and grasp onto forever because they were there. Yep. You know, getting marched out and, and that whole element I thought was so cool that they did that because it really made it a special event to be there. And the only way you could experience it was by being there. Yep. Absolutely. All right. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm done with that. I feel Me like too. I've, I've come to my senses. Um, <laughs> we have, uh, the, uh, blot spot this week. We do. That's right. Can I just tell you, I feel like we won the blot spot this week. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> this is, uh, uh, I'm very excited to, to bring this message from our field reviewer. Ben Lott. Where I agreed with you, this is of course regarding Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Every single word. This movie was brilliant. Easily one of the best, if not the best movie I watched for the first time because of the next reel. I was a little taken aback by the abrupt ending, but I think it was a logical choice because Capra gets you to the height of joy and then leaves you wanting more. This is one of those films that I could see becoming a traditional movie I watch once a year. Your ranking... Two out of 192, my ranking eight out of 192 could go up with more views. There you go, Andy. Let me just read that line again. Easily one of the best, if not the best movie I watched for the first time because of the next reel. Here, here. Here, here. That's why we do the show. So that uh, it took us to help people discover these wonderful movies. 192 (laughs) films to get there. Uh, feels pretty good. Uh, it, once again, thank you very much, uh, Ben. I think I think I'm going to start. Uh, I'm going to start making his posts official posts on the blog for people who want to go back and back. As long as he keeps sending them, I'm going to make him a guest blogger. What hey, you think, you think that'd be okay? I think it's great. This is real time development right here. That's right. We like to decide things while, <laughs> while we're live. <laughs> Shall we tell the people where we're from? <laughs> where are we from? This is The Next Reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that over there is Andy Nelson. Yo. And we spoil movies. Tonight, on the show, the fourth in our series of the great films of 1939 with Raoul Walsh's gangsta thriller, The Roaring Twenties. But before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Subscribe on iTunes or follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. And if you're a boozy malcontent, a canceled stamp, a cake eater, a choice bit of calico, then you're also the kind of dew dropper who should pull a Daniel Boone and then head over to Instagram.com slash The Next Reel and play The Next Reel's Instagram hashtag pony prize hashtag guess the movie challenge. And for that, we're off once again to fearless reporter Stephen Smart in the Maryland of Scotland to give us uh, the update on all things around questionable ponies. Stephen! Hey guys, uh, Stephen here. So, so like the victim of a drive-by fruiting, I was a little stunned this week when newcomer at AQS Morning View nailed it on image one. This week's movie was Mrs. Doubtfire, a 1993 comedy directed by Chris Columbus, starring Robin Williams, Sally Field and Piers Brosnan. So congrats at AQS Morning View, you're entered to win the Pony Prize. And as always, a new challenge starts Friday, so hope to see you there, and uh, thanks guys, see you later. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good. 
<laughs> you know, sometimes you got to get spanked because then it, it makes the, the uh, you know, it makes the real beating so much sweeter. Is that what you tell your children? Oh, God. <laughs> That's so terrible. You got to so take wrong. it. You got There's the line. There's the Andy line. <laughs> How'd you oh, go there, goodness. Mr. Nelson? <laughs> uh, I think it's time to do trailers. Let's do it. Suicide Squad is one, is one of those that was, uh, it was leaked uh, from uh, the, uh, from uh, Comic-Con and ended up, uh, the the pressure I think built and they just sort of threw it out there and um, this came uh, with the legitimate release of uh, the next trailer the Bruce Wayne trailer Batman trailer of of Batman versus Superman uh, both of these films come out in 2016 and I picked Suicide Squad I am actually more excited for Suicide Squad than I am at this point for uh, Batman versus Superman and I have to tell you I am more excited for that film than I was uh, prior to Comic-Con. So that's kind of an, an interesting twist. Um, I like this David Iyer guy. You know, I like him. I liked, uh, I've liked the other movies that he's done, uh, the, from Training Day to, uh, um, what was the, the End of Watch? And obviously we've already done Fury. Uh, and so I, I think he's a, a darn spanking good uh, action thriller kind of director. And so I'm excited to see what he's got. The cast is is... Um, they're all people again that I like this Margot Robbie people seem very excited about her I had not even heard of her uh, before this film you didn't see uh, Wolf of Wall Street yeah but I didn't know I didn't think much of her like not that I didn't think much of her it's like I literally did not think much of her I thought I I couldn't even tell you at that point she was was she the wife yeah yeah Yeah. that that was kind of her big breakout movie Okay. Well, now see so now I've I know. Known, I've known of her since that movie. Okay. So it's only only a couple years, but yes. Yeah. See, I mean, I I saw her in the credit uh, there when I started looking at this, but I I really had given her no thought. But she's been in an awful lot of stuff. Hails from Australia, uh, and uh, I I feel good to be on the Margot Robbie train. I'm looking forward to seeing her uh, play Harley Quinn. Looks like a great uh, cast. Cara Delevingne, who is all over the place all of a sudden. Have you noticed that? She's came out of nowhere. She's in this she's film, in but now she's in Paper Towns, and uh, they've been doing some great press around Paper Towns. Um, but she is making a the, a great transition from supermodel to actress, and so I'm excited to see how she does. And of course, um, you know, we are introduced to uh, Jared Leto's The Joker, right? And, and that's really the highlight of the trailer. What do you think of his uh, Joker? Uh, you know, I didn't have a problem with it. I I kind of liked him. I thought uh, I thought it's it's maybe a little more on the uh, I don't want to say the cartoony side, but it, it just it wasn't as dark and heavy and brooding as the Christopher Nolan. It was a little more of the Jack Nicholson, kind of a little more kind of uh, you know, kind of the old TV show, just a big and I don't know. It just I I liked the the way that he kind of carried himself yeah i did too he's a hard edge to it and i i really like that and um you know i i i'm not gonna get the quote right but uh andy notko said of these films he said uh that he was making a comparison between the marvel films and the dc uh universe films and he's and you know he's made some comment about marvel they've never made me you know whatever uh but then he said the dc universe films they've never made me laugh 
And I think that's a really good point. These are really, really dark films, and they've gone in a completely different direction than Marvel on its, you know, on its darkest day. And uh, I think that's okay. They, you know, they've got a. Um, this is this is what they're going to hang their hat on, and I think that's fine. I'm I'm excited to see the the darker side of of these characters. I'm excited to see them mash up. I think the big threat for me is jamming so much into this. Uh, into this universe so fast between Batman versus Superman, where we get, you know, not only Batman versus Superman, but we get, you know, Wonder Woman and, um, you know, who uh, we get, we get a, a smorgasbord of characters there. And here we have, you know, all of the bad people we're introducing at once. Uh, and so we'll see. Yeah, it looks interesting. I don't know anything about Suicide Squad. Um, I do kind of like what they're doing with it. It looks like an interesting film, and I I didn't even know it was a concept until this until the movie started coming out. But um, I think it looks like it's going to be kind of fun. Um, so yeah, we'll see. I'm I'm after the trailer. I uh, give it. Uh, I would say yeah. I definitely uh, would give it a, a thumbs up. Yeah. Well, and of course, I didn't even mention the big, big names. Ben Affleck is obviously in it, but Will Smith is in it as uh, as Deadshot, and Jai Courtney is is back. I hope Jai Courtney gets as Captain Boomerang. I hope he gets a little something. That's a more, terrible more name. than he got out of uh, yeah. yeah was Captain Boomerang. <laughs> uh, Viola Davis, uh, Joel Kinnaman. Uh, so it, it looks like a good cast. So I'm I'm excited about it. Yeah. So all right, what's yours? Let's talk TV. Uh, yeah, doing a little TV trailer, which is kind of a rarity. But another thing released at uh, Comic-Con was this trailer for this crazy new TV show that AMC is doing that just looks... I don't even know what to say about it. It's called Into the Badlands, and it looks like a wild story. It just it looks really interesting. It's like a post-apocalyptic world where this warrior, kind of a kung fu warrior finds this young boy in a trunk and they uh and and they kind of go kind of explore this world i guess i'm not quite even sure really what the story is Uh, it looks like this warrior is a i think they call them clippers um for some sort of uh big leader of a faction of people who i don't know what they're doing raising flowers or something poppies (laughs) and uh they uh and and so uh, he rescues this boy and it looks like this guy who raises these clippers or he grooms young children whose parents have been killed to be these new clippers and uh but our hero sunny um takes this boy and it looks like they go and hit the road and try to just kind of explore this world and i i don't really know there's not a lot of story in the trailer but it is a very interesting concept that actually looks really cool, and so I got quite excited when I uh, when I saw this trailer. It's just like, and I think I sent you a note. This is my new favorite TV show that I've never even seen yet. <laughs> it just looks so fun. So yeah, on Wikipedia it says the series will feature a story about a warrior and a young boy who journey through a dangerous feudal land together, seeking enlightenment. It's uh, described as a genre-bending martial arts series and is loosely based on the classic Chinese tale Journey to the West. So AMC is going to be doing a uh, uh, six-episode uh, season and see how it does. But yeah, it's supposed to come out this fall. Looks really interesting and fun to watch. A lot of uh, kind of the slow-mo, really interesting action scenes a la... Uh, we just saw that in uh, Daredevil and just kind of that whole style. It looks, uh, I don't know, I, I really want to see this. 
you know, it's it is. I, I find it interesting. It's it is uh, this show is written and produced by Miles Miller and Af- Alfred uh, Go, who are the guys behind well a lot of television. Uh, I think their their biggest uh, TV experience would have been Smallville. You know, they developed Smallville, 217 episodes over 10 years. And, um, uh, but they've got some, some films in that same thing. They did, you know, they did the worst of the mummy films. They did uh, the tomb of the dragon emperor, but um, you know, Spider-Man two, Shanghai nights, uh, I am number four. I mean, they've got, um, um, you know, they've got kind of a a history. They actually did lethal weapon Four, the story. Uh, behind that one, that's and, too bad. Uh, I, that was unfortunate. I know, um, but uh, or be fully loaded. It was, yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> but it, these are guys who know. Uh, I really think they're guys who know how to tell a fun action uh, television serial. So I'm, I am excited to see that too because I, I like these guys generally. I like their work. I think it's fun and frivolous, and um, you know, you often don't have to think too hard about it. Well, and they're also, after this, they're going to be doing the Shannara Chronicles, which is very exciting. That's going to be a TV series based on, uh, I think it's based on the uh, the Shannara series. Um, I'm assuming, because Shannara is a pretty uh, rare word, but uh, it's a series of adventures, war, and evil that occur throughout the history of the Four Lands. Um, that's going to be a TV series coming out next year uh, that they're doing. So, yeah, that really piques my curiosity. I'm in. Excellent. All right. All right. Now, listen, Pete, you came into this racket with your eyes open. You learned a lot and you know a lot. And if any of it gets out, you'll go out with your eyes open. Only this time, they'll have coins on them. Today's headlines tell a harrowing story of a world gone mad. As I read these headlines, I sometimes wonder how many people recall another astounding era in our recent history, ushered in by a similar period of world madness. It was a dangerous, lawless, high-tension era that will grow more and more incredible with each passing year. Until someday, people will say it never could have happened at all. At the time, I was writing a column for a New York newspaper. So I covered the most fantastic episode in American history, the Roaring Twenties. Now, those amazing days are recreated for you in Warner Brothers' vivid picturization of that dynamic period. In 1920, Prohibition arrived, and a country just recovering from the war jitters fell into a new delirium. The bootlegger sprang into being. Overnight, he switched the nation's mind from battles to bottles. An evasion of the law became the new national pastime. College students, yes, even high school kids and flappers, joined the mad party, and the jazz age was born. Suddenly, frenzy reached Wall Street, and the stock market whirled to dizzy heights. Millionaires bloomed at every stage door. The nightclubs were packed with delirious, free-spending thrill hunters. Money poured into the coppers of the underworld to be fought over and stained with blood. Hijacking on the high seas became daily front-page news. Against this seething background, Warner Brothers cast electrifying James Cagney as a reckless leader of gangland. Priscilla Lane as the nightclub singer whose destiny he controls. Humphrey Bogart as Cagney's ruthless lieutenant. Gladys George as a famous queen of the hotspots. Jeffrey Lynn as the cover-up man. But not good, I'll get good and ready. That friendship stuff don't mean a thing to me. This guy's got enough on us to... You won't talk. You better not. You don't like the racket I'm in, you don't like the people I know, the things I do, and it's not me, it's what I stand for, am I right? But I'm not gonna let that stand between you and me. You want the Brooklyn Bridge, all you gotta do is ask for it. If I can't buy it, I'll steal it. Say, what's this kid got on you? Oh, I don't know. Whatever it takes to get a guy like me, she's got... You're batting out of your league, Buster. You're used to traveling around with... dames like me. It had to be you. It had to be you. 
I wandered around, finally found somebody who could make me... You two me guys think you're pretty cute. Now, you listen to me. You tipped off the feds I was running in a load last night, and they took it away from me. And you lifted it from them. You're talking through your hat. Makes a lot of noise when you eat spaghetti, too. You're cute. But not cute enough. The Roaring Twenties, Andy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 106-minute newsreel over the history <laughs> the history of the Roaring Twenties, Prohibition, and gangster drama. This is uh, from director uh, Raoul Walsh, uh, written by lots of people, mostly uh, Jerry Wald and Richard McCauley. Uh, stars, the you know this is why we why we gather. It stars well, what I was gonna say, and Robert Rosen, Robert. Rosen. Yeah, Robert Rosen, right. other. Yeah. yeah, but we gather because it's uh, Jimmy Cagney, Priscilla Lane, Humphrey Bogart, Gladys George, Jeffrey Lynn, Frank McHugh, among other really fun people to see on screen. This is, I believe, the last of the films James Cagney and Humphrey Bogart did together, yeah. um, and um, it. it it was uh, yeah. What'd you think of it? How did it how did it uh, stand up for you? I enjoyed it. I I thought it was a, a fun gangster film to watch. Um, I I would say I enjoyed it more than Gone with the Wind and more than Ninochka. And I would say I enjoyed it less than Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. I I agree with that sentiment. For me, this was a a smack middle of the road film. Mm-hmm. And it and it I found it funny because this is often uh, this one is it's hailed as a great gangster film. Right. I did not find it a great gangster film. I okay. found it kind of structurally a little bit structurally confusing. I found that, you know, the film is is structured so that it's, uh, you know, we it, it tells us the story of I, I think it goes from like 1919 to 1931 ish. Thirty three. Thirty three. Okay. So it, it takes us over this 14-year period, and so occasionally it's like it's like giving us the scope of this gangster's life, Jimmy Cagney's life, as uh, as the gangster, right? He's uh, Eddie Bartlett. And his buddies, Humphrey Bogart and Jeffrey Lynn, uh, played George Halley and Lloyd Hart, and they all meet at the end of uh, the war, at the end of, of World War One, And... Th- they're in the trenches together and they're, you know, talking about cigarettes and talking about what they're going to do at the end of the war. They end up in this old house and we we're introduced to Humphrey Bogart's uh, dark side as he kills a young German soldier, uh, you know, seconds before the <laughs> finds out the yeah. war is over. Right. Uh, so, you know, it's a, that that that's a moment. But from there on, the film takes us on this road throughout the 20s as these guys come in and out of each other's lives as Cagney's character builds his business as a bootlegger, um, you know, selling uh, liquor to uh, speakeasies throughout the Prohibition era. Uh, and then the fall of Prohibition uh, as it's uh, toward the end of the 30s, or at the, uh, the end of the 20s, uh, and the fall then of his career. It's broken up in sort of chapters. I don't know, is that fair? These segments that are split by... Um, this a newsreel that tells us what was actually going on in that era. And I liked the newsreels. I found myself educated. Um, <laughs> and I liked the film. 
But I found myself, I found it sort of a staccato way to put the film together. I didn't, I didn't find myself really engaged by these characters. Um, I, I just sort of watched them. Um, and I was mildly amused by their interactions. I did not find the romance romantic his, uh, with, um, um, Priscilla Lane. Um, well, <laughs> I'm not sure if you're supposed to. Well, his, you know, he, he was in love with her, right? I mean, he wanted her. He was in love with her. Right. Yes. There, but there was no romance because she didn't love him. Right, exactly. There was she never any him. reciprocation. But you know what? I didn't, like, there was no tension in that relationship at all. It was like, yeah, he loved her, but, like, I didn't, I felt like he was just kind of, he just sort of buzzed around her and and found him more annoying in that relationship than any sort of intense unrequited spirit. So I, anyway, that's my, that's my take on it. I found, I didn't find it as engaging. It was a, it was a fine, uh, it, it was a fine experience and I'm, I'm glad we did it. And it does not hold up to the experience that we had last week. No, no. I mean, it's a hard, it's hard to follow, uh, such a great film as Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Mm-hmm. I think it would have been hard for any of these films to really come after it. The um I I think I enjoyed it more than you. I think I connected to the characters a little bit better. I didn't have any issues with the storytelling style. It was kind of done almost as if they were wanting it to be an epic covering the entire decade. I mean, it's titled The Roaring Twenties, and we get to see it from uh, just before to just after. So it really does cover a wide swath of that time, and you really get a sense of the time. I liked the way that they tied the newsreel um, uh, type of footage together with um, the story so that I could kind of get a, a a handle on where we were now in context of what was going on at the time. Um, and I, I just, I, I liked the characters. I, I did enjoy the relationships. I particularly enjoyed the interesting, it wasn't even a love triangle. It's really kind of a love, um, uh, square. <laughs> I don't know what you call it. Uh, love quadrangle. There's four of them really. It's, it's Jim, uh, James Cagney, loves Priscilla Lane, but she really loves Jeffrey Lynn, and Gladys George really loves uh, James Cagney. So you've got, you know, the four people. And I enjoyed the uh, the fatal flaw, if you will, of uh, Cagney's character, how he was uh, just so brash and and wouldn't really... He just he didn't catch on with uh, people as quickly as far as like what was you know what was going on. He he really was driven by his own needs, and uh, I liked that sense of his character and how he saw Priscilla and he just wanted her to be his without really any thought as to uh, what she wanted. And every time there was any. Uh, um, uh, hint from Panama, played by Gladys George. He didn't catch it, and he didn't even catch that Panama kind of liked him. I I really enjoyed all that with the characters. It, it does feel very of the period. I, I do find the uh, like Bogart really is just playing the evil character, and he plays it to a T. You know, he's just like right on with that '30s bad guy sort of character. And Jeffrey Lynn is the complete opposite. He's just like 100% the the good boy character. 
and Cagney's kind of in the middle of them. Uh, I, I did find that sensibility of the story a little bit uh, more dated than uh, some of the other films. But I had a lot of fun watching it. You know, uh, people always talk about the great gangster films, and I just recently also watched uh, Little Caesar, which I hadn't seen before. I was and just going to ask how you would compare those films. Yeah, I, I, I had not seen Little Caesar before. I haven't seen Public Enemy before. I, I'm missing a lot of those kind of gangster, uh, a lot of these classic gangster films. Um, Little Caesar, I also felt really underwhelmed by. Granted, I did really think that um, uh, Edward G. Robinson did a great job in it. He was fantastic as that sort of character. But again, it's very big, over-the-top, bad guy sort of acting. And, you know, it just it feels kind of like you're watching that classic uh, Robinson take on the gangster that just becomes so... Um, uh, kind of so typified for what was how a gangster would act in those movies, you know. Same thing with Cagney and Public Enemy. Uh, that is such a uh, a high point for the genre. And then this film, you get a, a little bit of a, a difference because Cagney isn't necessarily just a gangster. He kind of you see him kind of go into that world, not necessarily for nefarious reasons or anything. And and I liked that we kind of see that transition. And I liked how this story really took us on this whole journey of this man's life into that business, out of that business, and then trying to save somebody uh, at the end. I mean, I, I really liked the journey of this so much more than Little Caesar, which really felt like. Um, very, it was a very straightforward sort of story, which felt very much more 30s. The storytelling of this with that movement of that character actually felt a little more developed. Yeah, I, you know, I agree with you. I, you know, I was trying to think of the other films that, that, you know, besides those that we would compare to these sort of gangster films, right? The, like um, the big gangster films? Yeah, the big gangster films. Like, like, um, the original Scarface, right? That was that was sure. the early '30s. Um, yep. Yeah. Uh, you already mentioned. Did you you mentioned Little Caesar? Did you mention Public Enemy? Yeah, Public uh, Enemy, High Sierra, High Sierra. Right. It, like these yeah. these are those those films that I I feel like we we need to sort of compare to that that the killing. Oh, sure. All right. So it's a little bit later, right? It's a yeah, little bit 55. later, right? But it was, um, but but that was the film that I feel like I I wanted, and it's kind of it's an unfair comparison, right? Talking about this one for you know, good. Well, and that's a heist later. It is a heist film, but it's that sensibility, I and mean, this one has plenty of heist in it. I mean, this is this is they've no, but this is a this is different genres though. Definitely, one is totally yeah. agree. I yeah. totally agree. I totally agree. But there is uh, a sense of that kind of crime intensity, and that's what I missed. Right? That's what I what I wanted out of this film, and I feel like I I I didn't get. And I think that's why, um, you know, when I look at, you know, I I don't think this film holds up to you know Scarface nineteen thirty two. I I don't think it holds up to Public Enemy nineteen thirty one. I I think that you know we get a greater sense of of the criminal intensity in these other films. And this one um, just doesn't give me that emotional uh, resonance. Hmm. <laughs> okay, I well, win. <laughs> I, I, haven't, I haven't seen those two, so I can't say. But if it's between this and Little Caesar, I would pick this 
Yeah, I would agree with you. Too. I would probably agree with you too. And I think that one is is overestimated in its its greatness too. I mean, it's it is it it hangs on Robinson's performance. I think. Yeah. No. I, well, and I think a large part. I mean, from what I hear about Public Enemy, a lot of that could be said about Cagney and that. I mean, you know, st- sticking the grapefruit in the woman's face, uh, yeah. all yeah. that sort of stuff. I think a lot of that is just. It's great because Cagney was great as the villain in it, as the gangster. And I think he was better as the gangster there than he was here, is what I'm right. saying. Well, maybe, but I don't think, I think it's a different type of film. Those are films about the gangster. This is a film about a, a man who we watch his journey over a period of time and we see him come in and out of the gangster world. So I, I think there's a little bit of a difference. I do not see that difference. I don't get what you just said. <laughs> well, <laughs> this is, that was a film about a gangster. This is a film about a man who becomes a gangster. <laughs> I, I, I full stop. <laughs> I can't. I can't speak to Public Enemy, but yes. Little Caesar. It is a film about a guy who's already bad, and he wants to be the top dog. And we see him strive to be the top dog he becomes the top dog and then he gets killed spoiler mm-hmm. alert <laughs> that's that's that movie right this one is about a guy who's who's a good guy he's a soldier we see him come home from the war there's no job for him we it could be best years of our lives that we're watching at this point right he, he there's no sense of the criminal element in this guy's world. He is completely a normal guy. He starts he's struggling trying to find work. He starts with his buddy kind of uh, on the side doing some taxi work and then he accidentally falls into becoming like this delivery boy for uh for the speakeasies. And through that he he develops a business, but he really is kind of a businessman before anything else and and he kind of moves into the darker world through that business and only because of the element of bogey um who comes into his business later does it turn into something darker with with the uh, the guns and killings and all that sort of stuff and then because of the crash he loses all of his money and he ends up out of that world he's no longer a gangster in that world and we see him actually now trying to figure out what he's going to do. He still is a really nice guy. We see when he uh, hooks up with the, with the couple again, when he sees Jean and uh, takes her home, drives her home, and, uh, and he runs into uh, Lloyd when he uh, comes home. And he sees them, and he agrees to help talk to Bogey to try to not get him to kill Lloyd, basically. And uh, and that leads to that tragic conclusion. It but in there, you've got it. You've got a note in there that he actually says as part of his speech. He says, "You know, don't worry about me. I'm going to be back on top again. Like I am striving to become a, a leader of this gang again. This is this is my aspiration." And he's saying that to Lloyd, who is at this point a a DA. Yeah, but I don't think that he's. I, I think he is aware that the world has changed. I mean, yes. he says he says as much to uh, to George when he goes in and talks to him. And I think that when he says I'm going to be on top, I don't. I didn't read it like I'm going to be another sort of gangster again. I thought it was him saying I'm going to figure stuff out and I'm going to get back on top. 
as you know, uh, you know, as a person in this new world, and I'm going to find a way to get myself uh, uh, together again. That's how I took it. Well, I, I think you can only take it that way up until the point that Eddie grabs the gun and murders everyone in George's house, right? Well, I mean, let's see. No, well, right. But I think what happens there is he know he's he knows the minute that he agrees to help Gene out, he knows he's walking in to basically get killed, right? He knows he's not going to walk out of there. He knows George won't let him walk out of there. Um, because of the what he's delivering. And I think he goes in there knowing that he's going to die. And I think he goes in there uh, willingly and then and then basically takes George down and sacrifices himself in order to stop all of this and to save Lloyd and Gene and keep them happy. Okay, I, I can see that. I did not see it that way when I watched it, but I can see where you came, where you got there, how you got there from here. I saw it as he would not have gone in there. I agree that he knew that he was going to die uh, just walking through the door, that, he, that that was the risk. I don't think he would have gone in there uh, in the first place had he not felt confident enough that this was a shrewd business move and that he would come out of it somehow on top, knowing what he would have to do to get in there. I mean, the guy was frisked as he knew, walked in. He knew he wasn't going to be able to take a weapon. Uh, and uh, that he felt like he was strong enough, powerful enough, fast enough to be able to either negotiate this in a way that would turn in his favor or turn the table using, you know, physical response and violence to get there. Maybe I wanted to see it that way, and I think your point actually works maybe better for the film. Uh, When you look at, at his character journey... Uh, and and you look at where the the newsreels actually do work, which is, you know, they help us understand really clearly how the environment and the times and the economics of the of the twenties led to this criminal behavior, and how this you know sort of lightweight criminal behavior bootlegging led to more violent criminal behavior gangsters. Right, right, and so I I can sort of see that I. I don't necessarily think that it's it is that easy of a transition to say that he's still a good guy at the end. I I you know feel like his character of Eddie is he's not a good guy at that point. He's made that transition. He's made the transition from a, a you know the pure milk drinking bootlegger to an alcoholic mess uh with you know delusions of grandeur. And he is not a whole person. He's not the whole person that he was before. Um, you know, when he was sitting in the in the trench in the war. No, I agree. I I, I think that the whole point of this film is really watching this the Roaring Twenties, this period of time, uh, bring this man up and down, and and really leave him destroyed because of everything that had gone on in here. Um, I think that. I mean, he's not a, when I say a good person, I, I didn't mean like he's our, he's a good guy or anything like that. I mean, I just think that he's in a place where he's making good decisions and he's, he's doing things for the right reasons, even though he, you know, may still be kind of a, a mess and a, and a bad guy. But I think that he goes into that last situation knowing that, you know, the Eddie Bartlett who had been on top 
is gone and is never coming back. That gangster life that he had been leading is is done. And the only thing he can do now, because he's never going to figure, he, he, I think he may know that he's just not ever going to get himself back on top. And the only thing he can really do anymore is to stop George and uh, from hurting Lloyd and Jean, who he's always been in love with, even though she's never reciprocated. But I think that, I don't know, I, I guess I see it as there's, there is something good in him even though he's gone down this dark road it's like his last chance to kind of let that goodness shine okay and i you know i would agree with you on the the good guy part right i i feel like he is in the in the first half of the film he's operating pure of heart mm-hmm. right i mean he's doing things to to kind of grow his business but you know it's a business that is operating in a way that he he feels is uh, or at least he demonstrates, is not, um, you know, it's it's innocent, right? How, yeah. how bad could it be? We're helping people have a good time. How 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 bad could this be? Well, and yeah, I mean, this was a period of time where, uh, you know, they foolishly uh, put out this amendment to our Constitution that basically prohibited alcohol, something that everybody was drinking. And all of a sudden, everybody had to go into speakeasies and find ways to drink, you know, outside of uh, public places, outside of the law, so that they wouldn't get caught. It was a, a crazy thing, but it drove everybody, in a way, to kind of have to negotiate with criminal elements because everybody was a criminal. Everybody was a criminal, right? And so it was part of an ecosystem that had to exist in order to to satisfy these. These needs, but I also think that the film does a pretty good job of showing how that transformation occurs. And I don't think it's just a story of about this one guy. I really think the you know the the message is look at how the twenties created an ecosystem of um, you know substance abuse and the crime around that substance abuse that we, they were even feeling when this film was made in 1939. And I think that's a you know it's this film is you know is one of many that demonstrates a legacy. Uh, that that I think is important, and I think it's a you know it's a it, in in that respect I think it's a it's it's good, uh, and I did enjoy I did enjoy watching it. Yeah, just, you know, it's just not great. No, I, I agree. I totally agree. All right. uh, let's talk a little bit about Raúl. Can we about Raúl yes. Walsh? Raúl. I, I don't know much about Raúl Walsh. 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 I've seen some of his films, not uh, all 138 of them. What should I? What should I care about? Uh, he's a. Uh, he has been around. <laughs> Rahul Walsh was. Uh, I believe he was an assistant director for D.W. Griffith on Birth of a Nation and some of his early silent films. And he actually was an actor as well. He played John Wilkes Booth in Birth of a Nation. And so he had been um, doing a lot of acting through all of that uh, period of time as well as working behind the camera. He ended up, he was working on a film and I don't remember what it was. Um, what was that film? Uh, old In Old Arizona, a film that he was working on uh, shortly after, um, no, was it, uh, when was it? No, it was in the, it was in the twenties. He was working on this in the twenties and he was in Arizona filming and, uh, he had a car accident because a jackrabbit jumped through his windshield as he was driving crazy. I've never, I mean, <laughs> jumped away, not just across the road, but through the windshield. <laughs> right. 
That must have been one of the uh, ones from uh, Monty Python's uh, <laughs> rabbit clan. Uh, anyway, this uh, it, it, he had a car accident and he lost his right eye. So if you ever see pictures of Walsh, he's generally, well, at least after the accident, he's always wearing his eye patch. And, um, and he never acted again. That kind of it was the end of his acting career, and he just went on to direct after that. And he did a lot of stuff. This was his first film with James Cagney, and he went on to do um, more with him, more with uh, uh, Bogey, just a lot of people. And it's just one of those guys who um, did, I mean, he did some great uh, film noir. He did um, White Heat with James Cagney. I mean, he did Dark Command, They Drive by Night, High Sierra, They Died with Their Boots On, Strawberry Blonde, Manpower, um, you know, like I said, White Heat. Uh, he did Clark Gable pictures like The Tall Men, King and the Four Queens, Band of Angels. Uh, I mean, he's a guy who was around a long time. Well, he does have a mighty fine job here. Yeah, I think that... He actually, uh, I think he does a really good job of encapsulating this entire period in this uh, two-hour period of time where we really get a sense of the decade and we got, get to watch these people progress over from 1919 through 1933. I think he did a great job with it. It was, it was, you know, it feels like it's aspirationally epic in scope, and it doesn't quite become epic in scope. It's, it, it's a little short to be... Uh, you know, to be epic. Well, it's no gone with the wind. It, right. Uh, and, and it is, it's I mean, it's 106 gone. minutes, right? It's not, it's not even two hours. Well, um, yeah, you have to remember, this is Warner brothers. This yeah. is the studio that really was cranking out these gangster sorts of pictures. Right. I mean, that was what Warner brothers was known for. And Raul Walsh, um, was really good at the action sort of stuff. And, I mean, in this, there are some action scenes. Now, I mean, there are no Michael Bay big sorts of action scenes, but for 1939, these were top-of-the-line action scenes. You've got the great shootout in the uh, in the re- Italian restaurant. You've done $5,000 uh, worth of damage. <laughs> <laughs> you've, you've got the uh, a number of different uh, shootouts that these guys have in different fight scenes and everything. Um, they do. He did a great job of staging those and capturing all of that action. And for 1939, I think it's uh, it is pretty gripping to watch some of the stuff that they do. I mean, and then you've got these these great stunts that they have people do. Like he has Cagney push that guy o- backward over the st- over the the railing. That was right my favorite sequence. Yeah, that was great. That was very then, much a Scarface sequence, right? His the his exit of the building, taking the guy hostage, pushing the one over the railing, and the and the shootout coming down the stairs. Right there was you. Yeah. You can see, you could feel the legacy there as it plays out again in Scarface and the Untouchables, and I, it's just great. Yeah, yeah, right. I interrupted you. No, you were, I, you were I, on a rant, and I interranted you. <laughs> I, I think that I had said my piece. I, I think Raoul Walsh, he uh, captures the elements of the film really well. Um, I think he handles the action well. He had um, uh, Byron Haskin do the special effects photography. I think the scene of the stock market crash with the effects work in that sequence is just fascinating to watch. The, the, melting, the growing bell. Yeah, just like some some amazing effects work in yeah. that that short sequence that was just really fun to watch. Yeah, you're right. The melting buildings that was fantastic. Mm-hmm. That was crazy. Um, 
All right, let's talk just uh, uh, briefly about the writing team that put this together. I'm glad you brought up uh, Robert Rosen. Um, I, I can't believe I would have left him off the list. Yeah, uh, he's kind of fan- a big one of the fantastic writer. Um, he's let's see what he really ended up winning stuff. He's nominated a ton, but mostly winning stuff. Uh, you know, back when he was, or, or later in his career, this was still a little bit earlier in his career, right around like all the King's Men and the Hustler, and those were his, I think, bigger works. Yeah, he. I mean, he was nominated for um for five Oscars, I believe, right? In terms of Academy Awards, right? He was nominated for uh the Hustler for Best Picture, Best Director, uh, Best Writing Screenplay based on a material from another medium, The Hustler. Um, and then in 1950, best director and best writing for all the King's men. Right. Um, but lots and lots of other, you know, other nominations from other awards. Yeah. He, he came on in the, uh, in the late forties to start directing. I mean, he had been writing since the late thirties and, uh, I think he made a nice transition into directing and did some pretty cl- uh, classic films. I mean, the hustler is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, all the King's men is uh, wonderful, and so I, I, you know, he's one of those great writer directors, and uh, yeah, this was a great, uh, a great place for him to play around a little bit, do some uh, interesting writing. Uh, Jerry Wald is another writer that uh, wrote this with him, who uh, we talked about on our Key Largo show. Yeah, right. You know, it's interesting when you look at his his. You, we look at these these writers of the period and directors of the period who've churned out hundreds of credits, and he really doesn't have that many. Twenty seven writing credits, ten directing credits. Um, and yet I, you know, I think the work that, that he did is really good. The Seawolf, fantastic. Out of the Fog, fantastic. Um, there's, there's just a a great set of films in this short list. Absolutely. Uh, what do we know about uh, Richard McCauley? Uh, very much, uh, kind of a lot of noir sort of stuff that he was, uh, tapped into. Born to Kill, he did that. Um, he did, um, uh, they drive by night and uh you know just a lot of a lot of kind of that grittier sort of stuff i think he was um i don't I actually don't know i i want to say that he was a a, a a kind of a writer for warner brothers and did a lot of their sorts of stuff but i'm not sure i want to say that but i can't commit to that now what's interesting is he's got 43 credits no directing no producing credits just, no, just a straight just up writer. writer. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and uh, we, you already mentioned Jerry Wald. And I mm-hmm. think, uh, he was much, much more of a producer even than a writer. Yeah, yeah. He Key Largo, he had worked on as a, as a producer yeah. on that one. Right, right. But, I mean, he, he wrote, I mean, he was writing from the, uh, the 30s into the 40s. I mean, he had uh, quite a lot of credits there too. But yeah, not, uh, not quite as many as his uh, producing credits. Let's do a, a quick run through the rest of the cast that you find uh, that you might find interesting. Uh, we've talked a bit about uh, James Cagney and Humphrey Bogart. You have anything more to say about Bogey? Um, nothing more about Bogey, but Cagney because we've talked about Bogey a number of times. Yeah, we have. Show. Yeah, but Cagney we've never talked about on the show, and uh, he's he is a fascinating guy to watch. I really like watching him. Um, I I think that he gets better in his career. You know. Um, mm-hmm. 
I, I don't know. I mean, I say that with Public Enemy, everybody talks about that's such a, a brilliant role. Um, Orson Welles said he's maybe the greatest actor ever appeared in front of a camera. Stanley Kubrick said he's one of the best actors ever. I mean, everybody really loved James Cagney. He was a really interesting guy um, who actually, I think he left acting to like he retired later in his career to go work on his farm back east and uh then he only started acting again because he had i think he'd had a stroke and his um doctor said if he if he'd get back into it it might kind of help him and so he did a few bits of acting here and there later in his life into the um into the 80s i think he was in ragtime in 1981 <laughs> i uh, have you, what do you, have you seen ragtime i've not seen ragtime mm-hmm. Uh, I actually saw Ragtime when I was studying up on E.L. Doctorow, the writer, and, and E.L. Doctorow wrote the the novel right. uh, for Ragtime, and I I think I probably saw the film two or three times before I actually realized that it, I knew James Cagney was in it, but I, I like I couldn't believe it uh, <laughs> that it was him. It just did not look like him, uh, as and so um, it's a strange experience. That that film, Milos Forman. Uh, you know, I'll have to I'll have to check that one out because he had a big mustache in that one. Yeah, right? he did. He had a big mustache in the hat, and his face is really uh, large. He has he's a bigger man in yeah. 1981 than than you sort of remember him. Right, right. So yeah, he was back and forth with Warner Brothers. I mean, he he really didn't get along with Hal B. Wallace, who was uh, at uh, one of the. The heads of Warner Brothers at the time, one of the producers there, he really didn't get along with him, and so uh, there was a lot of back and forth going, uh, you know, fighting with people at Warner Brothers, back and forth, and and uh, yeah, and he made a lot of money. I mean, he's you know, he's a great actor, lots of good stuff, and then uh, shortly after this, he'd go on to do uh, um, Yankee Doodle Dandy and, and get an Oscar for it. So, uh, anything else on him, or shall we talk a little bit about Priscilla Lane? Uh, Priscilla Lane. Uh, was one of the Lane sisters, a family of American singers and actresses. You know, she was fine. In, <laughs> she, in this film. she was fine. Yeah, she didn't wow me, but I thought she was fine. She'd go on to do uh, was it Saboteur or Sabotage, one of those two with Hitchcock a few years later. But uh, yeah, it's a uh, funny. It's a funny. It was Saboteur. It's a funny thing because you know the sequence where she's introduced. <laughs> You know, as a singer in in Panama's nightclub, yeah, and she comes out, and he's you know uh, he's tapping his hand on the thing, and, and they pan around the audience, and they do some sort of audience clips of as she's singing, and and she's saying, "I'm so wild about Harry," and no one in the audience looks interested at all, <laughs> right? They look completely bored, and that's that's sort of my feeling too. She was not a she she did not live up to that like enchanted star power. Um, that that I sort of wanted to see out of her. And I think her performance sort of was, it, it was a bit muted for me in that regard. And maybe that's why I had such a problem with the romance. Like there was, uh, you know, she was, obviously she wasn't into it, but she didn't even seem overtly out of it. But see, I, I don't know. I thought she was as bland as Lloyd was. <laughs> Lloyd was bland. Yes, he yeah, was. I mean, Jeffrey Lynn he was, was as milk toast as they come. Incredibly bland. There was really not that much uh, of interest with him or her. And so I thought, you know what? They're fine together. They belong to each other. <laughs> I was much more interested watching Gladys George as Panama. She was an interesting character, and uh, she there was a lot more subtext going on with her, and I I just enjoyed that 
character so much more than Priscilla. Uh, yeah, I absolutely agree with you uh, on that one. When's the last time you saw Arsenic and Old Lace? It's been uh, uh, probably 20 years. It's been a yeah. long time. Me too. It makes me, this makes me want to go see that film again. Uh, you know, Cary Grant, Priscilla Lane, uh, I feel like maybe I, I, she's left me with kind of a bad taste in my mouth after this film. And I think I remember liking that one much, much more. You yeah. know, how can you not? I mean, it's, no, I, I love I love the film. I, I love, but... I love Saboteur. I mean, I don't think I have a problem with Priscilla Lane. Uh, maybe I think my problem may be just the, the way that the role was written. I'm thinking, yeah. cause I mean, I, I liked Arsenic and Old Lace. I like Saboteur. I think that she's probably fine. I think maybe it's just a really bland character. Yeah, you're right. And and you're right. There's a little bit of a cheer when she and Lloyd leave. They finally leave. And you're like, oh, thank <laughs> goodness the boring ones are gone. We're left with the good ones. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, I, I feel like we can sort of pass over Lloyd. He was a fine character. He was a, he was a utility character. He was the lawyer. And he was the conscience that, you know, never quite got far enough away. Um one of my favorite characters, though, was uh, was Frank McHugh, who played uh, Danny Green. Uh, he was kind of the uh, he was the right hand of uh, James Cagney, and he played a really uh, just blessedly innocent uh, character who really wanted to be more of a player in this thing, but Cagney wouldn't let him. And this was, I think, to your point, this was an example of Cagney really being the good guy, uh, trying not to let. Danny get hurt. Yeah, right. I loved him. I thought he he was really charming, um, and uh, you know, I, I he's he's another one of those. He's been in 168 things, a lot of television, particularly later in his career. But uh, um, I, uh, you know, I I feel like I haven't seen a whole lot of his other stuff, but I really liked him. Going yeah, my I've way. seen I've seen very little of his work, but I I mean, I guess that he and uh, and. Cagney were good buddies, actually, and um, they were part of what at the time was called Hollywood's Irish Mafia. They're both Irish, and they both, you know, it was just kind of the I don't know what it was. It's like you know the the Brat Pack or something. You know, it's one of those sorts of things, the Irish Mafia. But um, yeah, they did a lot of ad libbing, kind of coming up with scenes. And uh, I thought there was always great magic when the two of them were on screen together. And I mean, really, just Frank McHugh carried a lot of magic anyway. I think he has a lot of life in his performance and just was fun to watch. His the, Their reintroduction when, when uh, Cagney comes back from the war and they have their first conversation in, the, in their apartment, I thought was just charming. I Absolutely. loved it. I loved it. I loved him bringing the, the, the German helmet back and him hiding it not very well under the bed. <laughs> <laughs> it, was just, it was just great all over, and he was a real treat to watch kind of throughout. I, it was, he's a sad loss. Crossing yes, myself. Yes. Um, so, uh, anybody else that, that is uh, on the list of cast that you really want to talk about? Paul Kelly, who was the uh, the the bad guy, the other yeah. you know gangster who was against uh, against Cagney. I uh, he was an interesting uh, guy. I mean, I think he was fine in the film. He had actually uh, he um, was convicted for manslaughter before this and which was also tied to a sex scandal he ended up spending time in prison in the 20s and uh yeah he uh, had quite a, a little bit of a seedy 
personal life, but uh, you know, he still ended up making quite a lot of films, and uh, I thought he was. I thought he did a good job as the bad guy in this. <laughs> and Cagney shoots him in the back. I thought that was an interesting little thing. It's like, wow, you're seeing a our so-called hero actually, you know, shoot a guy in the back. Right. Again, to my point. I I know. I, I thought that was a very interesting little uh, bit there. Yeah. Trying to, this was in a point, a point in his life where he was going down this very dark road. Yeah. So I like that. I mean, there are some elements of this film. I like, I love that scene. I love the scene when he kills Bogart and the, the sniveling, uh, pathetic person that Bogart becomes, I was like, wow, that's a really interesting turn that I wasn't expecting to see out of Bogart right there. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Playing the strongman for so long in this film. Yep. yep. Uh, that's interesting. I am I am really obsessed now in this Paul Kelly story, the manslaughter charge. That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, well, kind of the dark history of people. The last uh, film, IMDb says, before his manslaughter char- charge was The Poor Nut in 1927, which was not released until the following August, by which time Kelly was behind bars. So they removed his name from the credits, even though he is a prominent supporting role in the film. I have not wow. seen it. How did it do overall? You know, this is one of those movies that there's just squat out there. Mm. I couldn't find anything. I couldn't find, you know, budget, gross, nothing. So I have no idea how well it did. But, well, uh, you know, a, it that's was, a cry and shame. It was a, a Warner Brothers gangster film. It uh, had Cagney in it as a gangster. This was, he, he had been a gangster, uh, playing gangster roles all through the 30s, and he was getting really tired of it. So after this, he doesn't play gangster again until uh, actually 10 years after this when he does White Heat. But, uh, yeah, I, I couldn't find anything. I'm just assuming that it did well enough for them to keep making these sorts of films. <laughs> All right. I'll take it. Let's rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. Sign up for an account if you don't have one. And make sure that you uh, friend us so that you can stack up your stack rankings of favorite films with our stack rankings of favorite films. And let's see if they matchies. Let's do it. The Roaring Twenties or Hot Fuzz. Hot Fuzz. Hot fuzz indeed. The Roaring Twenties or the Sandlot? Hmm. I feel like I could go the Roaring Twenties on this one. Yeah. Yeah, I think I will too. I, I'm a little torn, but I think I will do the Roaring Twenties. Uh, the Roaring Twenties or La Vie en Rose? The Roaring Twenties. I would do the Roaring Twenties, yeah. Roaring Twenties or When Harry Met Sally? I would do When, when Harry, Harry Met, Met Sally. Sally. Absolutely. Roaring Twenties for Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Indiana, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Wins out. The Roaring Twenties or Syriana? You know I love me some Syriana. Yeah, yeah I'll give you Syriana. All right, the Roaring Twenties. Field of Dreams. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to give you Field of Dreams. Yes, you are. <laughs> <laughs> the Roaring Twenties or King's Row. Oh, I'm King, going to do King's Row. King's Row. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, look at that. 121 out of 193. Uh, that's right where I feel like it belongs. It's in the middle. It's right in the middle. Yeah, yeah. Near, I, I nearly feel, in the middle. I feel good with that. I, I don't see the others right now but i think that it is uh, above 
Nanashka and uh, Gone with the Wind. So I think that uh, is the right spot for this one. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, now, next week is our last 1939 film, right? Yes, it is the end of our of this particular year's uh, series of uh, the 1939 movies. What is it? We are going to end on a Cary Grant film, Only Angels Have Wings. So I've yet, heard. Yet another opportunity to see Thomas Mitchell in action. <laughs> uh, have, you, uh, have you seen this one? I have not. I have it sitting there ready to watch, but I haven't uh, watched it yet. I'm in the same boat. Cary Grant, Gene Arthur. Here we go. Yep. All right. Well, until then, you know where to find me. I'm going to be in bed. All right. I'm going to head down to the uh, funeral parlor down the street. I hear they just opened up a speakeasy in there. Andy, Amazon brings us the gift of five-star reviews tonight because uh, there are no one- or two-star reviews. And it was that loved. It was that loved or that poorly seen. <laughs> right. So I am uh, I'm coming to you with the good B.G. Carroll, who says this is an immortal classic, the stuff dreams are made of. This movie, the pluperfect example of the Warner gangster film... Seems a better film today than at the time it was released. Directed by with flair by Raoul Walsh, it moves at a cracking pace and is especially well cast with a gallery of Warner Brothers regulars. Cagney dominates the picture with one of his most likable and poignant performances, always full of humor and above all humanity. The attention, I should say that again, because he's not above all humanity, above all humanity. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The attention to period detail is outstanding, and especially with regard to its music score, a brilliant collage of contemporary popular songs woven into marvelous dramatic score by that unsung genius Ray Heindorf, who also provides the knockout orchestrations. The finale is pure magic, as Cagney dies in the arms of Gladys George on the steps of a large church, one of the most ubiquitous standing sets on the Warner lot. Betty Davis runs up those steps at the start of Deception, 1946, and it stood in as a courthouse in a dozen films. Bogart makes a great rat-faced crook, and his verbal sparring with Cagney is a delight. The DVD is all one could ever wish for, sparkling restoration. Bravo, Warner's great film is now immortally preserved, and its stature can only grow with each passing decade. Um, I'm really glad that this re- this review reminds us to talk about the finale which is awesome yeah absolutely uh, just the, the best part of this film is just that amazing ending after the shootout it really is just a truly heartbreaking uh finale it, it really got me uh got me i liked it yeah me too me too he used to be a big shot good oh, stuff what's yours 
Mine is also a five star um, by John Farr, a little shorter than yours. A breakthrough for director Walsh. This classic boasts electric performances from both Cagney and Bogey. Consistent with most Bogart portrayals from the 30s, his George Haley is a low double crosser who puts the screws to honorable in his way Eddie. Consistent with most Cagney roles, Eddie gets his revenge. 20s is a worthy swan song to the glory days of the gangster picture. And just wait for that immortal closing line of dialogue. There it is again. Mm. Uh, so there you go. Five stars. Not everybody disagrees with us. Where do you, <laughs> where do you land on this? Is it about a three star for you? Three and a half. I'll go three and a half. All right. Sounds good. We'll put that on a letterboxd review. Thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <laughs>